What's up? Welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. We're a TV show now, and we're live in the studio. Uh, happy to have visual gags that I'm sure we can uh, incorporate. Sorry for the audio listeners, you're stuck in 2018. I'm very excited today to introduce you to a new host for the Neurotransmissions Podcast, Dr. Leslie Colgan. Welcome, Dr. Leslie Colgan. Thanks. It's really fun to be here. Yeah. So um, great to have you um, piloting the ship. Uh, I know Leslie is a tremendous scientist and a great colleague, and I'm happy to, to be working with you on the podcast. So um, for people who are new to the video podcast, which is everybody, um, tell us a little bit about your research background, what you're interested in, and, uh, and what you're up to these days. Sure. Um, I did my PhD in neurobiology um, at the University of Pittsburgh. And I've been studying um, how our neurons change when we learn. And I'm really into understanding the molecular mechanisms of this, so I like to get down into the nitty-gritty, um, unlike the more systems biology folk. And um, now I've actually transitioned out of the lab and into scientific communication. So I'm a scientific communication specialist here at MPFI, um, and I'm really excited to sort of get to jump right into this what's been a tremendously successful podcast. Cool. And, you know, I think uh, in your new role as a communication specialist, that's really great for the Institute here at MPFI. I mean, you get to help, like, lots of different scientists craft their message around their science, you know, how to how to reach the public in a, in a much broader way, make a bigger impact. So I think, you know, we're lucky to have you in that role. So that's, re that's really great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what we have on the agenda today. Uh, we have a great interview. So this is our first video podcast. Um, and our first video guest is, you know, no slouch. We'll, we'll put it that way. Yeah. So, um, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit? Yeah, about we definitely, we um, you know, picked a superstar to start off with. And today we're going to be talking with, um, Dr. Patrick Kramer, and he is, um, the director of the Max Planck Institute for Multidisciplinary Sciences. And he's also the president elect of the Max Planck Society. So in June, he's going to be actually taking over as the president of the Max Planck Society, over 86 institutes, a huge job. Um, he's an incredible scientist, um, and he's been uh, really instrumental in our understanding of how genes are regulated, particularly the process of transcription. Yeah, he has, he has a long and rich and productive history in this field of structural biology. Um, did his PhD at Emble, his postdoc with uh, Dr. Richard Kornberg at Stanford. Um, his his postdoc work uh, helped lead to the the characterization of the structure of RNA polymerase. Tell us a little bit about RNA pol yeah. polymerase. RNA polymerase is sort of the key player in actually transcribing our genes DNA into mRNA, so that they can ultimately become the protein that actually does all the important work in our cells. And you know, from what I understand, solving the structure of this it's a huge uh, protein uh, complex, really. And it was sort of a quest that had been going on since its identification um, over about f 40 or 50 years. And so to be the one to actually solve that, mm -hmm. I think, was, was pretty amazing. Uh, he, he went on to do um, a tenure-track faculty position at LMU in Munich before becoming a director at the Max Planck Institute um, in, in 2014, where he's been since then. And now he's president-elect of the Max Planck Society, uh, continuing to you know, push forward on technological advances for being able to unravel some of these larger structures 
uh, at the molecular level and understand their role in transcription. Fantastic scientist. We, we had a chance to see his talk over at Scripps the other um, the other week uh, when he was here, and uh, yeah, mind blowing. Hopefully, we'll be able to use the visual aspect of this podcast to show some cool visual aids. Maybe Kevin can put something here. It's like a little uh, graphic or something. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just holding my hand up in the air. We'll see. <laughs> um, so without any further ado, let's jump into our interview with Dr. Kramer. Let's do a quick costume change. I'll take this Tommy Bahama thing off and I'll be wearing something different, I'm sure, but uh, it'll be seamless for the audience. All right, stay tuned. We're, we're live in the studio recording with Dr. Patrick Kramer, who's a director of the Max Planck Institute for Multidisciplinary Sciences, where he seeks to solve how our genes are transcribed and how that process is regulated. Um, he joins us today as part of a worldwide tour where he's actually visiting each of the 86 Max Planck Institutes um, uh, because he is president-elect of the Max Planck Society. So we're very excited to have you here today, Dr. Kramer. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. And... You know, I think um, for people who are new to listening to the podcast, we've talked about it in the past. I think our very first episode with David Fitzpatrick got into this a, a little bit. But can you describe what the Max Planck Society is, what its reach is, what its goal is, and, you know, how wide-ranging the different types of topics it covers are? I think it's fair to say that the Max Planck Society is really one of the leading research organizations of the world. As you said, we have 86 institutes, so a very broad range of topics. Often people don't know this because they know a few colleagues who are in their area of research, but they don't know that actually there's this portfolio that ranges from astrophysics, nuclear physics, through you know chemistry, biology, medicine, all the way to the social sciences, humanities, even history, law. And this is so exciting now on my tour that I get to know so many different institutes, different cultures, different research cultures, and um, meet all these great colleagues. So, um, you know, you're on this tour where you're visiting, I think we're number 53 or so uh, in, in the list. Um, why did you feel that this was an important thing for you to do, stepping into this, this new role as president-elect of the society? Yeah, it's a good point. Actually, I was thinking a lot about this. How should I prepare? Because you get elected and then you have a full year uh, to prepare until you actually take office. So what should I do? And I was sure I would have to learn about these different cultures. You know, when you do a PhD in law, it will be a very different thing from biology, for example. So I wanted to get to know these different cultures. The second reason was that I felt, you know, after the corona pandemic, People hadn't met a lot. Um, uh, you know, there were maybe some misunderstandings. Uh, it needed, you know, like a little bit of a restart. That was a feeling I had. And um, to bring people together again. And I want to contribute to this with my tour, to generate this community spirit. Um, that's really interesting. You mentioned different cultures at different institutes. I'm curious, are there any interesting anecdotes or impressions you get visiting a, a Max Planck Institute studying law or anthropology versus, say, life science or physics? Mm. Any any interesting observations you've made? Like, oh, I could go on for hours, but <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is mathematics in Bonn, in our former capital of Germany, right? And it's right at the center, at the main square, you know, we rented some space and there's the mathematicians. And these are, you know, field medals winners 
and they attract some of the very best young mathematicians who apply and then they are very happy if they get half an hour or an hour to talk to one of those stars because they may help them with their problem. So the way they are structured is so different from what we are used to. So you have four colleagues the, who would normally be the directors and have their own department. So they don't have that. They don't have departments. They have the four leading mathematicians. And then they have a guest scientist program. And they have 700 young people passing through every year. And then they get all their office. It's all organized. They meet at 4 o'clock for a tea. And, you know, they get some time with these world-leading mathematicians and that, you know, probably gets them out of some trap that they got into or something. And this is just such a different culture. And you can only do really mathematics, you know, by yourself. But then from time to time, you need somebody to talk to who even understands what you're talking about. And this is what that institute provides, very different culture. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. it's, it's also interesting that um, something like the Max Planck Society which oversees all these different institutes allows for such a broad range of how institutes get run. Is there any reason why, is it just the people who are running the show at different institutes bring a different flavor? Exactly, that's exactly the point. So if you want to boil it down to one sentence, how does Max Planck work, right? Fund people, not projects. There's a lot of things that are important for, you know, because they have societal value or they are challenges of the century. Think about hydrogen and the power of the future or things like that, right? There's many such topics. But Max Planck, deliberately, we choose to look for the best people and then give them the freedom to decide what is the most interesting question for you, right? And then they will do great. And some time later, you know, that may be applied Good work always, you know, will be applied at some stage. So you cannot separate basic research from applied research. And the approach is simply fund the best people and not projects. Um, one question I had as somebody who, throughout your career, you've worked at a lot of very prestigious institutions around the world, Cambridge, Emble, Stanford, LMU in, in Munich, um, before becoming a director at a Max Planck Institute. So maybe compare and contrast. Are there certain things about your experience coming up in the scientific world that are informed by how other places have done things? Are there certain things that appeal to you about the Max Planck model? And then maybe some things about how a typical academic university does things that you might want to bring to the Max Planck Society as in your new role, basically. Absolutely. I think... Um I will really benefit from those experiences, right? I've been a student in the UK, then I did my PhD in France, postdoc in California, then I've been at a university, a very different system. And, you know, all of these institutions have advantages and disadvantages. And I'm sure that's true for Max Planck. And to always reflect, is it really the best way of doing things, is very important. And to remember, you know, how did others do it? Was it probably better at some other place? Did they do it differently? So I couldn't, you know, make a list or so of the experience. It's more like mm, I have it with me if I need it. But one thing that is really important when you go to the top places, what you see is that people are brought together, right, to generate synergy. And that can be through architecture. It can be, it sounds kind of strange, but simply to have a lot of people in a relatively small space. I mean, we're always worried about do we have enough space to put our equipment, to 
you know, for our co-workers and so mm. forth. But it, actually, you need some density because there needs some to be some intensity also. People need to meet over coffee. They need to discuss ideas. And I think that is very important. You see that at the top places, no matter, you know, where in the world you, they are. Yeah, I know personally, one of the, the main things that I recovered coming out of the pandemic was running into people in the hallway. Like, right. Just like having that frequent in-person interaction, talking yeah. at the coffee machine, all this stuff is super important. So, yeah, I've actually never heard it put that way, that maybe uh, we worry about do we have enough space, but also maybe we have a little too much space <laughs> here. Let's get some more people in here. It's interesting. Yeah, so maybe we can actually take a step back a little and walk some of our audience through your career journey a little bit. Um, some of them might be wondering how actually you become the president-elect of the Max Planck Society. Um, I think we all know that, you know, first and foremost, you need, um, you've been an incredibly productive and successful scientist. And throughout your career, you've really been focused on sort of this one central question. Um, how are our genes transcribed and how is it regulated? So I'm curious, um, what was it really that attracted you to focus on this question earlier in your career, and particularly from a structural biology perspective? There's really two parts of your question. Both are very interesting. Maybe the first part, you know, how do you become president of the Maxwell <laughs> Society? You get elected by the Senate, but then how do you get there, right? The Senate actually also elects a search committee, and the search committee is going out looking, you know, would there be some individuals who may be suited for the job who would actually also enjoy the job because they see the benefits, you know, that they can, you know, do good things for the next generation and so forth. But it's something you cannot plan, right? I certainly didn't think a couple of years back, oh, now I'm running for president. Because I was in the lab with my people. We were doing research. I was doing what everybody does, right? Publishing, going to conferences, applying for more money and all these things, educating people, training people. But then at some stage, colleagues approach you, and that's happened, that happened in my case, and said, maybe, you know, you should consider this, because I, I think you could probably do it. And then you start thinking, and you'd, I discussed with my wife and, you know, reflected over the summer and eventually took that decision. Not an easy one, by the way, because I will have much less time for my own research. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, I have this wonderful opportunity to do something for the next generation. And certainly you took on some sort of leadership roles earlier in your career yeah. as a professor. What sort of skill sets do you think you had that made you um, successful in those types of roles? I think um, I make, of course, mistakes like everybody. But I try to reflect, you know, why did it go wrong? Maybe I can avoid that next time. Or I encourage people to tell me if I do something wrong. I try to learn, you know, just like in science, where you, you seek the truth, right? And here also I try to um, learn from others. Always, you know, seek advice, learn from others, take the criticism. And uh, that is maybe uh, something very important. Because through, even if it's only a little crisis, but through a crisis, you can always develop. And that crisis may be, by the way, also that you just move to a different institution or you change the environment, that, that is also important. Um, but in terms of the, you know, what is important, what, I, what do I think is important for leadership, um, it's of course participation. That uh, people, you know, are heard, you listen to them, you also ask 
for their opinion before any decision is taken. That I think is very important. And I mean people on all levels, right? Because they all contribute to our goal, which is to bring you knowledge to the world. Um, so that is certainly important. But I think also fairness. I hope that I have been fair, you know, whenever I could. As I said, I made mistakes. But this is something that people um, are really worried about if they are treated in an unfair way. And so I, I make an effort to be fair. Also, sometimes I make mistakes. Yeah, maybe we can switch gears a little and talk about some of your early career a little sure. bit. So, um, you know, you're focused on this very fundamental science. It's actually called the central dogma of biology, um, how our genes are transcribed. And um, I'm curious, you know, you studied as a chemist. Did you, how did you first get interested in this topic? You know, it's, it has been serendipity to some extent. Um, so I was always fascinated by macromolecules. You know, I studied chemistry, but I was always interested in the chemistry of life, mm. the chemistry of living cells. And in there, of course, you have all the proteins. And they have all these different shapes and, you know, wonderful functions. And they have different functions because they have different structures. And so I realized, you know, I want to be one of the people who determines such structure so that we understand how these wonderful machines of life actually work. And then the serendipity was, so that was, yeah, I should say that was, um, you know, I was a student in, in Germany, but then I went to England, to Cambridge, to uh, get exposed to the structural biology world. And of course there, you know, I saw some of the leaders, some of the Nobel laureates like Max Perutz and Aaron Klug and all these people in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And this was so fascinating because they just took time and they took, you know, we had coffee together. I was just a little student. I didn't even have a degree or anything, but uh, this was very encouraging. And then to see, you know, to be there when these big protein structures are actually solved. I remember next to me there was a student, who, uh, Jan Peter Abrahams, who actually solved the structure of the ATP synthase, which mm -hmm. is this wonderful machine that makes the energy of the cell and that was a Nobel Prize later and I was actually there when he put the atoms in place you know and that was very encouraging so I was always interested in structural biology but then you know why did I get to transcription that's a different story yeah. so when I, I was probably in Cambridge for a year or so and I applied to EMBL to the European Molecular Biology Laboratory uh, to do my PhD and um, you just apply to the program and then you meet all the different PIs, right? And there was one PI, he was not on the list because he hadn't even started. He was still at Harvard, you know, he wanted to open a lab in Grenoble in the French Alps. And I was very taken by his work. And that was the work on a transcription factor called NF-kappa-V. And, um, you know, I looked at that structure. Actually, I had seen it in Nature. And then, oh, now I meet the person who did that work that was on the front cover of Nature. And this was so exciting. And so I became his first student. And I think I gave him a hard time because I challenged him all the time, you know, in the first year. Um, but in the end, that's how I got to transcription. And then at the end of the PhD, after three, four years, I realized that if you really want to achieve something in transcription, you have to solve the big problem how the RNA polymerase looks like because that's the machine at the center of the whole business, right? And what we were looking at were all these transcription factors that were interesting, 
but these structures wouldn't tell us how the process of transcription works at its heart. And this is why eventually I went to Stanford to Roger Kornberg, because there they had all the biochemistry in place to solve this big problem. That's how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. I love hearing your stories of meeting these, you know, very um, famous um, scientists who had solved these incredible structures, and then, you know, other young scientists today have that same experience meeting you, and you actually were able to contribute um, in a large way, probably, to um, Dr. Kornberg's Nobel Prize itself, because you were, um, you know, crucial in solving the structure of the RNA polymerase. So, um, we'd love to hear more about that experience. Um, it seem, seemingly happened very quickly because you had a very short postdoc, but I understand it was actually, you know, sort of a decades-long quest. Yeah. Um, what were some of sort of the challenges that had to be overcome? Yeah, thanks for the question, actually. Um, thinking back, this is such an interesting story um, because, again, it has to do with serendipity, which is much more than good luck. What it actually means is that you also spot your opportunity, right? And you you take a decision. So you have to also see when the opportunity arises. So in that case, what happened is the following. I knew that they would be at the forefront of solving this problem because of two things. First of all, they were very strong in the biochemistry. So for example, they could prepare the RNA polymerase from yeast cells. They had this huge fermenter, you know, uh, 200 liter, 250 liter fermenter where they made a large amount of yeast and they, you know, were opening the yeast cells and getting out the polymerase. And they were able to make several milligrams of the enzyme, which was a huge achievement. Uh, there were very few people who could do that kind of biochemistry. And the second thing is that there were several people who had already gotten some crystals of this enzyme. And at that time, when there were no direct electron detectors, it was only crystallography that could solve the problem. Only X-ray crystallography could give you a structure at eventually atomic resolution. So you see the mechanism, right? Especially for such very large proteins that we were looking at, half a million Daltons. And so they could make the protein, they could even crystallize it. But now, what was the problem? Why had they been stuck for many years? It was that those crystals, the inner order of those crystals was not good. So you would put these crystals into an X-ray beam at the synchrotron at one of these large synchrotron facilities. There's one next door and also one at Berkeley, right? Um, and you would put it in these really strong X-rays and you would look for the diffraction pattern and it was very poor. So the inner order of the crystals was poor and that means you cannot get the high resolution information to solve the structure. And so how did I achieve to get high resolution? It sounds weird, but I was able to shrink the crystals. So you wouldn't think that a crystal can shrink, right? But in that case, it's possible because um, protein crystals are mainly solvent. There's huge spaces like tunnels inside of the crystals. So and I was able to withdraw, you know, um, water from those crystals to so dehydrate them. And then the molecules actually, they, they move like this and they form a stronger crystal lattice. There are stronger forces in the end, more interactions. So the crystal gets smaller. Normally they are destroyed if you're not careful, right? They will break and so forth. There's stirations that you see on the crystal surface. But in that case, you know, I developed a protocol where I could shrink them very carefully. 
and then would you would actually take bits and pieces of these shrunk crystals, you put them in the X-ray beam, and suddenly you get wonderful diffraction, three angstrom, even better. And that was, I think, the, the major breakthrough. After that, it was just a huge amount of work to find the so-called heavy metal derivatives to get the phase information. So at that time, you know, I was writing letters uh, on paper, and I would send them to colleagues in Germany, uh, inorganic chemists, and I was just asking them, they had no idea about structural biology, do you have anything in the fridge, you know, that has a heavy metal <laughs> and that is soluble in water and doesn't decompose or so? And they would send me really weird things, you know, like I remember there was a rhenium compound, RE. You know, I've never in my whole life worked with anything on rhenium. But that thing actually was almost like a magic bullet and gave a lot of face information. So a lot of work from there on. I got up at three, got, went to the synchrotron. But the key was really shrinking these crystals and making them diffract X-rays. Interesting. And did you have a single like aha moment? Do you remember when you were first seeing one of these images after you had shrunk the crystals? <laughs> yeah, that that's had... one that I remember very clearly. And that is, you know, you have to imagine when you work on this problem, you have no idea whether you're ever going to solve it. And the reason is you see the diffraction spots, right? But as long as you don't have the phase information for these diffracted X-ray beams, you don't know whether you will ever solve that structure. So how good is your face information? I, I never had any good feeling for it. And that one early morning, as I said, I would always go at three o'clock or so. And this was because, you know, when people started the shift at seven or so, I already had three, four hours of measurement time before others came and I had to move away because, you know, others would take the measuring time. But I had three, four hours and that one morning, um, I remember exactly that uh, I got from one of those heavy metal derivatives, I got some phase information. And I was testing the phases by calculating a so-called sink anomalous difference Fourier map, something very complicated. <laughs> but just to tell you briefly what happened, you, you, you open the map and I saw eight dots. And so I knew it's not going to be noise because I knew from biochemistry and from the sequence information that the polymerase binds eight zinc ions. Mm -hmm. And I was at the zinc edge was, you know, there's the so-called anomalous signal of the zinc and I got these eight. And so it's this one thing where you immediately realize it's working. It's only a matter of time and a matter of work. And so I jumped up, the chair, you know, <laughs> fell over. And I went out of the synchrotron, and the sun was just rising over the Silicon Valley. You know, you look down a little bit from the Stanford synchrotron. Sun was rising, and I just felt really good because <laughs> I knew it's still going to be hard work, but it will work. I, I will get the structure. But you had to wait three hours until anyone else came to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> so, I mean, when you started your independent work, you continued along this Having the, the crystal and the, the structure of RNA polymerase is obviously a really big deal for understanding like mechanistically how transcription is happening. Um, I think so we saw your talk this morning and uh, incredibly detailed, very beautiful images and animations of these molecular machines doing their thing. Mm. Uh, well, well, let's take a minute. Let's put one in the, 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 the video. Uh, sorry, podcast listeners. This is for the video audience only. 
Um, so obviously these structures are really um, amazing to look at. One of the things that you said that really struck me, not being a structural biologist myself and not knowing a lot of the individual parts of the puzzle, is that the goal is really to understand this transcription process from the level of chemistry. So basically not thinking of it, at least in my mind, as these individual punctuated points that sort of get you from pre to post transcription, but a fluid series of reactions and, uh, you know, descriptions that can be achieved, you know, molecularly. How close are we to that goal of having a, a purely chemical understanding of, um, of transcription, would you say? Yeah, that's a, thanks for the great question. I mean, that is basically um, what I spent my life on so far, right? It's uh, you have this biological phenomenon that is so important for the development of organisms, for differentiation of cells, also for tumor growth. Um, and you want to understand this biological phenomenon on the level of chemistry. And so how close are we? I think we are much closer than uh, the generation before us because the generation before us um, purified all the proteins that you need to Bring this, make this process of transcription happen. But now we have all their structures, we know where all the atoms are, we even know how these proteins get together. Uh, so we can make those movies. So what is the next big step? The next big step is that we can also see how the process is regulated. Because chemistry means you understand a reaction, right? And so how, how do you understand the reaction? to go from A to B. You understand it by first defining all the intermediates of the reaction. But then you also have to understand the energy barriers between the intermediates. And then you have a chemical understanding. And then those transcription activators and repressors, they will change those energy barriers so the reaction becomes more or less likely. And that is the real chemical understanding. So to answer your question, we have now the intermediates. So we you know, begin to understand the reaction. But if we want to understand the regulation, we also have to define all the energy barriers and then how they are changed when you regulate genes. And maybe I can say, add one sentence briefly, that we use functional genomics to do exactly that and to look at the kinetics of transcription in cells. And we have identified now three different strategies how genes are turned on and off. Of course, when I say we, it's the community because many laboratories contributed to that. Um, but I think we're relatively close to have a rough chemical understanding of transcription and its regulation, which is almost like, you know, um, an aim for my career that I had. Uh, but it came much earlier because technology developed so rapidly. I'm going to go off script briefly and ask sort of like a philosophical question because I noticed that, you know, the your director at the Max Planck Institute for Multidisciplinary Studies. This actually seems very fitting because not just because there's a lot of different scientific disciplines involved in the research that you're doing, but also that you're sort of transcending these different levels of understanding. Like there's the physical explanation, the chemical explanation, the biological explanation. Ultimately, they're all describing the same thing, but they all have different uses in our ability to understand. So where do you go from like having a unified model that basically explains everything? Is that is that necessarily at the chemical level or is that something that's just um, impossible for the human mind to really comprehend? We need the biological explanation to understand 
targets for drug intervention or something. We need the physical one to explain maybe like the model of how the thing works right. in real time, but the chemical one is the part <clears throat> that unifies it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's a great question because what I was discussing so far, this chemical level is really the level of structures when we're talking nanometers, right? Even angstroms, so which is one tenth of a nanometer. Uh, but then the cell size is, you know, in the range of micrometers. And in between, you have a layer, people often call it the mesoscale. And a lot of things happen at this layer in between, which is still quite enigmatic. Hmm. So what is that layer about? I think it's about self-organization. You know, we understand the molecules, but the molecules play with each other. They're very fast, actually. They go, you know, from one place to another very quickly. They interact. They test out new partners, they interact with nucleic acids, they glide along nucleic acids. So this kind of dynamic interplay of molecules at this mesoscale is something that is still relatively enigmatic. But there is self-organization in cells, and a lot of the regulation you know, happens at this mesoscale. I think it has to be because um, the biological processes, after all, are relatively fast. Within hours, the cell can divide, you know. Within days, you form a new tissue, you form a new cell type. Within weeks, you know, you can build whole organs and so forth. So how can it be so fast? I think it's because on that mesoscale, that's my, um, I assume that this is so. On that mesoscale, you have self-organization processes that speed up things and push cells in certain directions before you have all the little chemical details. That's fascinating. Speaking of sort of like, where the mystery, where the magic happens. It seems like in this field, there's been a lot of acceleration, a lot of technological advancements, many of which you've been sort of at the forefront of pioneering. We, you know, from x-ray crystallography and cryo-EM and, you know, functional genomics and this sort of thing. Now AlphaFold, we have like AI and machine learning tools mm. publicly available that because researchers like yourself have provided the structure we now have like ways of predicting how specific proteins are going to fold and maybe misfold in different diseases what do you think the importance of those technological advances is in your field and then broadly speaking in terms of where we go from here like what is what's still missing that we can't do technologically yeah that's a good point so maybe i start with a general comment on ai i think we should not un underestimate AI. And the reason is because for the first time we make machines that can improve themselves. And that is a totally new quality. So if somebody says, oh, it's just a robot, it's just a computer, it's just a program. I think it's that's a different quality to AI because also these machines can learn using input data that we cannot use because it's just vast. You know, they can learn on basically the knowledge everybody around the globe generates on a certain problem. We see it now with text. We will see it more with biomedical data, you know, making predictions about disease outcome, things like that. We will see that. So it's a new quality. This And AI will really, I think, penetrate most disciplines of science, you know, from astrophysics to medicine, that's for sure. Now, um, what's really missing in our field, I think, the big challenge that we have ahead of us is to do structural biology in cells. Because what we always do is we disrupt cells, we take out the proteins we're interested in, we look at structures. 
Now, you know, the polymerase was the largest asymmetric protein at the time uh, when I could solve that as a postdoc. And that is now 23 years ago. Uh, it was huge, but now people solve things that are 10, 100 times larger. Even whole nuclear pores, right? Where the polymerase can go through like a little <laughs> droplet. Huge complexes like this. So there's almost no limit anymore to this approach. But the what is important, I think, to do structural biology in cells. And their cryo-electron tomography will be important. The AI, because you can predict all the pieces of the puzzle using AlphaFold and other algorithms. Um, and then validation strategies. And one last thing I wanted to mention, what will be really great is to close this resolution gap between light microscopy and electron microscopy. Because light microscopy gets better and better. I have a great colleague, Stefan Hell, at the mm -hmm. Institute who got the Nobel Prize almost 10 years ago. For, Friend of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, uh, together with uh, colleagues uh, for these developing these methods, these high-resolution light microscopy methods. And they are closer and closer, and I think they will close the gap to cryo-electron microscopy. And then what you will have is more like um, continuous bioimaging where you have the structures, but you can also follow them in live cells. Because the advantage with light microscopy is, of course, that you don't have to isolate things. You can label them in cells with a fluorescent label and follow them. And that you can do it on live cells. So you can see movement, you know, how are proteins coming together, all these things. Great. So before we run out of time, I want to kind of switch gears um, and talk about your recent work during the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, um, you know, many of us were sort of forced to take a break from our own research, um, but your team sort of did the opposite and jumped into maybe a new level of productivity, sort of a hyper gear, and um, were successful in solving the structure of the RNA polymerase of SARS-CoV-2. Mm. And we're able to actually use that structure to help understand how some of the antivirals were working or not working and, and sort of inform sort of our design of new antivirals. Um, I'd love if you could sort of just walk us through your mindset a little bit at that time and you know, what being able to do that work sort of you know, meant for you and how you were able to accomplish it so rapidly. Yeah, it was very interesting. I even wrote a little diary in the night you know, because it was such an intense time. It was emotionally, emotionally also very intense. Suddenly everybody was only on Zoom. So we did what everybody did, right? The whole lab went to home office. And then we had our first Zoom meeting, you know, and we got used to it, like everybody did. And then we were thinking, what could we do to help, right? We are doing transcription, so how could it be useful? And then we thought, the virus also has a polymerase, <coughs> right? And we are polymerase experts, and we have all the tools. Why don't we solve the polymerase structure, and then we can later visualize how certain drugs work that inhibit the polymerase, or maybe even use it to develop new chemicals that could eventually have antiviral function and so forth. And so then six people went back to the lab. And how did we choose those people? First of all, they, of course, had to be interested in volunteering to do it. <laughs> but the motivation was huge. And, you know, those people had complementary expertise. So one was more on the protein side, the other on the electron microscopy. Third was on the computational side. And so it was in record time, I think it was six weeks from, you know, 
cloning the, the polymerase to submitting the manuscript to BioArchive and posting it on Twitter. And that we never had before, right? Mm -hmm. It was an incredible time. And they worked in shifts, you know, like day and night, you know, to make this happen. And um, it was a great experience. And then we could follow that up. We could visualize how Remdesivir, the first COVID drug, which is not such a great drug, you know, has some effect, but not great. You have to take it very early. Um, we could visualize how it actually works. And then the Molnupiravir, uh, we also visualize, has a very different mechanism, totally different. And now what we're doing together with Herbert Waldmann, who is also at Max Planck in Dortmund, uh, he's a chemist, we are screening hundreds of thousands of compounds to find new antivirals. And actually it looks quite promising, but this is a very lengthy process. It's, you know, for the next virus that will come, for sure, to be ready. And because, for example, the medication Paxlovid, all right, it actually, the development was started after the 2002-2003 pandemic. So that's about the time frame we are talking. Yeah. And how similar are the polymerases of different viruses? Is right. it likely that one antiviral will be effective mm. against many viruses? Yeah. I mean, things like this molnupiravir, for example, it works on many viruses. Why? Because it's very generally interfering with the process by introducing mutations. Mm. But the compounds we're looking for uh, will be very specific um, because we don't aim to inhibit the polymerase at the active site. That would then work for all viruses. That's an advantage. But it's a disadvantage for corona because it has a proofreading function where it inactivates your antiviral. It cuts it out from the growing RNA chain and then it doesn't work. This is how we got into this misery in the first place because the standard antivirals would not work for corona. So um, before we wrap up, I, I just wanted to end on a, um, a note about the future. So you're, you're president-elect of the Max Planck Society. You're starting in June in your official capacity. It's also the 75th anniversary of the Max Planck Society. So, you know, in, in these last few minutes, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about what do you think the Max Planck Society should be most proud of in this 75-year history? And what do you see going forward as some of the main priorities you'd like to see happening in this society? First of all, you know, it will be so fantastic in June to celebrate uh, because we will be at Göttingen. The biggest, you know, event center that we have will be for Max Planck. And um, we will have several events around it, exhibition and so forth. And that would be great to uh, celebrate because, as you know, Max Planck himself came to Göttingen after the war. He was fleeing from Berlin and came to Göttingen. And at the age of 86, 87, he passed away at 88. The last two years of his life he spent to reestablish the society right after the war. Very moving story connected to Göttingen, and that's why I'm really looking forward. So what will we do in the future? Well, first of all, we have to keep the breadth. You know, people ask me, oh, now the money's tight, you know, with the war and all these things. Uh, the explosion of cost in construction and so forth. So I think we have to keep the breadth. We shouldn't say, okay, this is less important science. Maybe we can cut here. We will not do that. We keep the breadth. Second, we have to um, remain at that level uh, of excellence. And that means scouting, looking for the best people, also fostering our own talent. And this is something I want to concentrate on because our future is the young people. So we will 
continue our programs to promote young group leaders. Actually, I've seen three of them yesterday here at the Institute in Florida. They were selected in Berlin, then chose to come to Florida. I'm very happy that they do well. They have established the laboratories. So we will keep doing that, fostering the young people. And at the same time, we can improve the gender balance because when we recruit the young people in a competitive procedure, uh, in a central procedure, uh, naturally we keep the gender balance because we have all the talent there and we're aiming for excellence so we look broad and it will work and statistics shows it when you look back over the last few years that these programs work well so i want to if possible generate more such positions even when the money is tight because we can fill up our pipeline you know with young people and then when we as we go out of the current financial situation over the next years, then we will be ready and we have the talent, we kept the talent in the system, uh, we can promote them later on. That's great. Well, Dr. Kramer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great conversation. It's nice to meet you. I thank you so much for your interest. Wonderful to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Okay, that was our interview with Dr. Patrick Kramer. Dr. Kramer, thank you so much for joining us. Um, that was a really enlightening uh, discussion, um, really thought-provoking, and, and we're really grateful for your coming out here to visit us um, uh, during, your, during your whirlwind tour of all the Max Planck Institutes. Uh, what did you think of the, the interview? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, I really enjoyed hearing his perspective on um, sort of all of the different hurdles he had to overcome, and uh, he's been studying this same biological process throughout his whole career and just to see the progress that he's made from the beginning to the end is just incredible. Yeah, and it's really interesting that like with something so small, like the question, you never run out of questions. There's always more there to, to dig into. So um, yeah, very, very fascinating stuff. And um, if you want to hear more from uh, Dr. Kramer, he recently gave a public lecture here in, uh, in Jupiter, Florida. Um, maybe it's Palm Beach Gardens. I don't know. We're kind of on the border. But uh, for our Science Meets Music series, um, and I don't know, you said it was one of the, the best talks you'd seen in a long time. Absolutely. It was really incredible um, just to hear him describe his very complicated science in a really simple way. Um, and I thought he was very effective. And also great music to go with it, too. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll try the, uh, uh, an experiment for the, the YouTube uh, crowd. You can click this link here. I'm, I've been told the, the video is available. Check out Dr. Kramer's Science Meets Music Talk or any of our other um, digital content here on YouTube. Uh, our amazing producer, Kevin Albertini. Next time, we're going to make sure we have a, ca a camera angle for, for Kevin. I want that sort of like Regis and Kathy Lee feel where they can like turn to the producer and like get like a comical reaction or something if yes. you say something stupid. Yes, I love so, um, yeah, and, and shout out to uh, Kevin for setting up this uh, TV studio that we now have. So um, pretty cool stuff. More to come. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. <laughs>